Okay, I'm going to tell a little story on myself this morning. <clears throat> Not for the purpose of... Uh, Yeah, definitely not aggrandizement, self-aggrandizement. And this is definitely one of those things where I would say, don't do as I did, okay? I could tell a lot of those stories, but I'll tell one specifically this morning. When I was young, in my teenage years, I was around some older boys, and they were drinking beer. And of course, you know, when you're young and trying to fit in with the older boys, they said, hey, you want one? Yeah, I'd never drank beer in my life, and I tilted that thing up. And for those of you that don't know what beer tastes like, let me try to explain it to you, okay? Take some rotten water and pour some kind of poison in it that tastes like dirt, and then put fizz in it, okay? That's... So I take my first drink of beer as a teenage boy, and it was awful. And I'm not saying that. That's honestly how I felt. But what do you think I did? Do you think I spit it out and said, Oh, that's terrible! No, I'm like, yeah, give me some more, you know. And actually what I ended up doing was I'd kind of, when they wasn't looking, I'd pour a little bit out, and I'd pour a little bit out, and I'd pour a little I'm like, I'm done. I think I better stop at one, you know. So I might have drank like four drinks of it. Hated it, hated it. But I acted like I liked it. Why? To fit in. So what everybody, and that's what the cool people were, because I'm looking at these older guys, and they're pretty cool to me. And I wanted them to think that I was pretty cool, so I'm acting like I like this beer, this rotten water, to fit in. And I also knew at the same time that I was doing this, that my mother would pull my insides out with her bare hands if she knew that I was drinking alcohol as a teenager. So I knew that what I was doing was wrong. I was convicted of it, I believe, at that point even by God. And I was scared of my mom finding out for sure. Because I don't know if I... I'd still be grounded today. I would not be here today if my mother had known. She'd have grounded me for 30 plus years and you know, no chance of parole. But I did it because I wanted to fit in. I didn't want to stick out. I didn't want to seem like I was uncool. Or that I didn't know what was going on. Or that I was not hep to what was going on in the culture around me because in a culture around me, people drank beer. And just so you know, it's been a long time since I've had any alcohol. I can count on one hand how many times I drank and probably one finger how many times I was actually inebriated. So I haven't drank in a long time. I am a teetotaler. I don't drink alcohol. But I did when I was a teenager, which is crazy. If you any of you... Teenagers are thinking about that. Don't be stupid, okay? Don't try to fit in. So what we're going to look at today is something I've really struggled with here in Esther 2. What's going on in this part of the story? Now we saw last week, and if you weren't here last New Year's Eve, which was really neat to have a New Year's Eve service where we actually preached and sang, and it was neat. If you didn't get to hear the message, we, we started our study in Esther, and we met... One of the big players in the story, a guy named Ahasuerus, or Xerxes was his Greek name. And he uh, got mad because his queen, Queen Vashti, wouldn't come when he called her. So he threw her out of being queen. Of course, they'd been drinking for six months, speaking of drinking. Um, And in a drunken rage, he said, made an edict. Let her be removed from office. She's not queen anymore. She'll never see my face again. And let's appoint a new queen. That's where we left everything last week. So now today we're going to continue in our study of Esther. And also, and I meant to throw in there, we're in Esther now because Esther happens in the time gap between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7. So this fits time-wise in that time frame. Then we'll jump, after we finish Esther, we'll jump back into Ezra and then go to Nehemiah. But today we're in Esther chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 1 through 18 today. We won't finish the chapter because that end of the chapter is pretty much a self-contained unit. So we're going to, we're going to read verses 1 through 18 of Esther 2. If you have a Bible, open it up to Esther. Uh, it's just a book or two before Psalms. I guess it's two books before Esther, Job, Psalms. So right before Psalms, 
And we're in Esther chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the words up here so that you can follow along. And if you would, please stand. And we stand out of reverence for the recognition that this is these are the very words of God. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Hegai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being twelve months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, When the young woman went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shajgas, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus in his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Let me pray. God, we do believe that these are inspired words, that your Holy Spirit moved someone along to write these words down so that we would know something about you. And I pray that that's what would happen today. By the power of your Spirit, open up our hearts and our minds so that we might receive what you have to give and then live out what you've given us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. (coughs) Excuse me. So, we're going to start with verse 1. Why not, right? After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So, when we left, and I'm going to call him Xerxes because Ahasuerus is just too much work. When we left Xerxes last week, last year actually, right? We left him last year. He was drunk from a six-month party, and he was mad because his queen Vashti had refused to come when he called for her to come. So now we start in 2-1 with the words, after these things. Now, this is a literary device. This is not like the next day, okay, just so you know that. Uh, We have to do some ciphering to figure out how long this was after the events of chapter 1. So um, it's more like three to four years. 
Let me tell you why I say that. There's a commentator named Anthony Tomasino, and he explains it this way. This is a quote from him. Some time had passed since Vashti's demotion, but the text does not say how long. It had only been long enough for the king's anger to subside, is what it would seem. It is possible that his cooling off period consisted of several years. And here's, here's the reasoning, and this is solid biblically. The fateful banquet where Vashti was deposed took place in the third year of Xerxes' reign. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 3. Later in this chapter, we're going to see that Esther was crowned queen in the seventh year of his reign. So 7 minus 3 equals 4. So three or four years between chapter 1, we get to chapter 2. And then he gives the explanation here. Since the cosmetic treatments took a whole year, Esther would have been taken into the house of women in the sixth year. So it's been about three years. We'll say three years between chapter 1 and chapter 2. After these things encapsulates three years. So I think if you just read that and don't do the ciphering, you just think it's the next day. But it's been a little while. So we said last week that Xerxes reigned from 485 to 465 B.C. So if the deal with Vashti happened in the third year of his kingship, that would be around 483, and Esther would have been crowned queen. Sorry to ruin the surprise. Spoiler. This is not a spoiler-free zone. Esther will be crowned queen, just so we've read it. Um, That happens in the seventh year. That would have been around 479 B.C. And the one year to soak the candidates and spices puts our gap between chapter 1 and 2 at around three years. So what had happened in those three years? And when I, Here's where things get interesting historically, and we don't see it in the Bible. And I mentioned it last week a little bit. I mentioned the Battle of Thermopylae last week. Well, that happened in 480 B.C. So, let me give you a little background there. Talking about the Battle of Thermopylae, if you've seen the movie 300, shame on you, you shouldn't watch that kind of junk, but I haven't seen it. But, but you know the story, 300 Spartans from Greece, right, held off this massive Persian army, okay? But before that, in 490 B.C., under Darius, the Persians had invaded Greece and gotten defeated at the Battle of Marathon. There's a good story there too, we don't have time for it. It was humiliating because Persia was the greatest kingdom on the face of the earth and the Greeks defeated them, sent them back home. So Darius was, whoop, I'm going to go back home with my tail between my legs. So sometime after deposing his queen, Xerxes, which was Darius's son, Ahasuerus in our story, decides that he'll soothe his conscience from losing his queen and build up his self-esteem by taking Greece. My dad couldn't do it, but I'm going to do it, queen or not. Well, at Thermopylae, a few thousand Greek soldiers held off the mighty Persian army for a full week, long enough to let the citizens of Athens escape and give the Greek army time to prepare for future battles. Now, ultimately, Persia won the battle, but it was humiliating to them because they had to kind of sneak around the back and take the army from behind, and by the time they got into Athens, everybody was gone, and they they won a hollow victory. And... They came and they told, what, what was the guy's name? I forget his name. The general for the, the Spartans. I can't remember. Theo, Theo, Theo. Anyway, they came and they told him, you better surrender because we got a whole army behind us. And he called one of his Spartans. He said, come here, son. He said, plunge your dagger into your chest. And the Spartan took the dagger and plunged it into his chest, fell over dead. He called another one. He said, you come here, son. He said, jump off this cliff. Guy jumped off the cliff. He said, you go tell your king, I've got 300 men just like this. You're not going to take us. And they held him off. They, they came to a strait, the Strait of Thermopylae. It was the only way that this giant army could get into Greece, and they held him off for a full week. So that had happened in between Vashti being deposed and chapter 2. So what kind of mood do you think Xerxes was in? He had been humiliated militarily. He didn't have a queen. Now, he still had his harem, but he didn't have a queen. And it says here, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, took him three years, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So he's remembering his queen. He's remembering his wife who he deposed. And he's going, maybe I shouldn't ought to have done that. Maybe that was a little harsh. Maybe I was wrong. 
So here he sits with no queen, looking vulnerable at best, militarily. And our text says his anger for Vashti was gone, and now he's missing her and he's sorry for what he did. It's so human, right? I mean, here's this mighty king and he's missing his queen. So what does he do? Verse 2 through 4. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So I think this is pretty significant. Pay attention to this first part here, okay? Who did he talk to when Vashti did what she did? He talked to his advisors, the princes, the, the governor-type people, the government people. Who's he talked to here? Then the king's young men who attended him. Cool now this, these are the cool guys, right? The cool guys that he's like, hey guys, what do y'all think I should do about this? They're like, I tell you what, let me, let, me, let me be pretty bold here. This guy is taking advice now from his young men who attended him. Hmm. Now, no offense to anyone who's a young man here this morning, but getting advice from young men is usually not a good idea. Amen. Give me guidance from an old wise sage, but I probably won't be seeking advice from the young men in my life. Why? Because usually they aren't thinking with their brains or pulling from a vast array of experience. They're usually driven by hormones and impulses. These young men are no different. What's their advice? Go get you some beautiful young virgins, gather them all together, dress them up, paint them up, scent them up, and pick your favorite. Now that's what these guys said. That's literally what they said. And the lonely, dejected, defeated king said, I deserve this. Today, I deserve this. Now think of... This just blows my mind. This pleased the king, and he did so. Just wow, right? (laughs) Yeah, watch what I can do. Hold Somebody hold my beer. I'm going to go gather up the virgins. Now note too, they're not looking for regal or wise or formidable woman. They're not looking for an international queen to build alliances with foreign neighbors. They're looking for hot, steamy, sexy teenage girls. Basically, literally. That's what they're looking for. And the king says, yeah, good idea. Great idea, guys. Let's do this. (laughs) Okay? So... Verses 5 to 6. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Now, before we get into the virgin search, we meet our next important player in this real-life drama. A Jew in Susa whose name was Mordecai. You'll hear some people say Mordecai. Again, too much work, we're going to call him Mordecai. Now this guy's going to be as important as anyone in the story, so take note of him well. They give his lineage, and he descends from the line of Benjamin, which was the same tribe as Israel's first king, Saul. Saul was a Benjamite. Saul, son of Kish, right? And they, they note Kish here, who was a Benjamite. It also says he had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Now, that's going to take some explaining. Okay, Let's go to 2 Kings chapter 24, verses 14 through 17, to look at this deportation. He here is Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who marched into Jerusalem and starting in 606 B.C., started carrying away captives out of Jerusalem. 586 B.C., he finally took the whole city. But this is one of the earliest deportations. He, Nebuchadnezzar, carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and the smiths. Sorry. None remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried away Jeconite, Jeconite, Jehoiakim, there we go, to Babylon. 
The king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. So, <clears throat> this deportation was of the higher-ranking people of Israel. Important and influential people, the smiths, obviously, right? So that, that's, that's what this deportation is talking about, and it says that that was the deportation that Mordecai was a part of. But, if we start putting dates together... And if the details in Esther are literal, it would mean that Mordecai had been in exile over a hundred years. So, hmm, could he have been that old? Could have been, probably not. It seems to me that the indication is that his family was part of the original deportation and that he had probably been born in the Babylonian or Persian Empire, especially since his name is taken from the Babylonian god Marduk. Mordecai is derived from Marduk, which is a Babylonian god. So it seems safe to say that Mordecai's family was deported with the upper crust of the exile of Judah, and then he was born in that captivity and given a name, here you go, that would help him assimilate into the culture around him. Nobody would think twice about a guy named Mordecai in the Babylonian or Persian Empire. Now more on this later. We've got a lot to talk about as far as acculturation and fitting into the culture around you. For now, let's meet, through Mordecai, our next major player in the drama. Verse 7. He, Mordecai, was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So here we are, verse 7 of chapter 2, and we meet the person who the book is named for, right? Esther. Technically, first we meet her as Hadassah, which is her Hebrew name. It was common for Jews to have two names, a Jewish and a Babylonian or Persian one. We see her Jewish name first, Hadassah, which means myrtle. And the myrtle was more of a bush than a tree in that time and place, and people used its leaves to make a fragrant oil. So it's a pleasing thought when they hear Hadassah. We then see her Persian name, which is Esther. And Esther is a derivative of the pagan goddess Ishtar, who was the goddess of love and war. Because what's right? What's different, right? <laughs> All's fair in love and war, so says Ishtar. So Esther is a derivative of Ishtar. So Esther, like Mordecai, was named after a pagan deity, further burying her Jewishness in the bustling Persian capital of Susa. I can guarantee you there was not a Persian in Susa who called this woman Hadassah. They called her Esther. Hey, Esther. Hey. Hey, Esther. Hey. And she answered to it, okay? She was part of the culture around her and was being cared for by Mordecai, who was her cousin, because it said she was his uncle's daughter. Your uncle's daughter is your cousin. Just if you're having problems with the family tree connection thing there. Okay. She was the daughter of his uncle and had neither mother nor father. Now she didn't just spontaneously appear. It says her mother and father had died. We don't know what happened to her mom and dad other than that they had died. And when they did, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. And note how Esther is described. It doesn't say she was a woman of dignity and worth. It says she was a young woman who had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. So how does that fit into our narrative? Well, verses 8 and 9 tell us. So, when the king's order to gather up the virgins, the hot virgins, and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with, cosmetic, with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. So, the king's looking for hot young women. Esther fits the job description. So when the young women were gathered, Esther was among them. Now my question is this. And this is pivotal, I think, in what we're going to look at in the rest of the book. Was she forced to go her, against her will or did she go willingly? Now the text does not tell us. 
In all of the stories that I've ever seen, poor Esther is dragged away from her uncle and he's going, please don't take her, please don't take her. I don't see that in the book. So I don't know. But I'm not real sure that she was sad about this. I have an opinion, and it is my opinion, okay? The word taken in our text today is not usually used to mean taken by force. And really think about it, how many people would line up for the chance to be queen? You have a choice to be a lowly Jewish peasant in a pagan culture living with your adoptive cousin, or you can sign up to be the female head of the greatest empire on the face of the earth. You pick. Now again, it's not overtly stated in the text, but there are no signs of struggle or defiance in the face of this edict. Zero in the text. We fill that blank in, I think, in our minds, but it's not there. There's no struggle. There's no protest. She's taken along with the other hot young virgins, and she's described as great figure, pretty to look at. So look at the next couple verses, and this gives us some support for that. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, not only could it be possible that Esther willingly signed up for this, it is stated clearly that her faith and her heritage were purposefully not shared. Esther followed Mordecai's advice to not disclose that she was a Jew. Now this puts her faith in the background of her life and her conduct. Was it strategically done? Well, surely. Mordecai was surely looking to protect her. But this stands in contrast with other exiles that we know. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. I will pray when you tell me not to pray. We will not bow down to the pagan uh, statue that you've erected of yourself, even if it means you throw us in the fire. None of that here. So Mordecai was looking to protect her. She was looking to protect herself. Were Mordecai and Esther faithful Jews? Maybe. But they were at least self-focused enough to want to protect themselves from any pain or consequences being Jewish would have brought to them. Now again, we'll explore this more in application. But looking at verse 11... Oh, sorry, I was on 11. It's clear that Mordecai was clearly concerned for Esther as he checked on her every day. So that's commendable. Of course, he's going by the harem every day to see, hey, how's Esther, huh, y'all? Anyway, but he was checking on her, checked on her every day. Maybe he had some connection inside, but either way, he kept good regular tabs on her and what's going on with her. The narrative now turns to the rules of the game in Xerxes' queen search, verses 12 through 14. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period for their beautifying, (laughs) I thought it took my wife a long time to get ready, (laughs) six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in and in the morning she would return to the second harem, second harem, Think about that. She would return to the second harem. Uh, I've lost my place. In custody of Shajgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. So, now we see specifics of how the young women were prepared for their fleeing with the king. Now keep in mind, this was the process every beautiful young woman went through in preparation to audition for being queen. How many were there? Don't know. Could have been five, could have been 5,000. I don't know. I wouldn't think it was just a few though. Okay, Each one would go into the king after being 12 months in beautification. 12 months. Now they were already attractive, but then they would spend a full year being dipped and soaked and scraped and rubbed and saturated with oil of myrrh and spices and ointments. You ever walk by somebody that seems like they bathed in that Bath and Body Works stuff? They smell like a big bowl of fruit, and you're like, what in the world? Call you punchy, fruit punch? What's going on here? Well, this is that times a year. A year. 
And then in verse 13, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. Now, we're not going to get into this too much because we're in mixed company. And it could be pretty gratuitous, I think, if we really looked into this. But let's just suffice it to say that this verse means that when it came time for each woman to have their night with the king in order to please him in a special way, a way that stood out, they could have and they could take whatever they wanted from the harem. Woof, you know. That's pretty much a Pandora's box of possibilities. So we're just going to leave it there, okay? We're going to leave it right there. Put a pin in it and not come back to it, okay? It's kind of weird. It's kind of gross, okay? So here's... Esther's turn now. We're going to look in verse 15 through 17 at Esther's turn with the king. And when I say turn, I mean turn, y'all, okay? Again, we're going to leave it there. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the son of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go in to the king, and that means exactly what it says, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus in his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So we see Esther's dad's name here, by the way, which doesn't really mean anything to us except that we see it. Abahel is his name. So it means nothing to us, but we see it. But it's her turn now. So what does she take with her into her one shot at impressing the king? Nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, advised her to. Now the king had a eunuch who was responsible for taking care of the harem. His name was Haggai. This is not the prophet Haggai that we met in Ezra. This is a Persian eunuch. And if you don't know what a eunuch is, ask your folks if you're old enough. And if you're not old enough, don't ask, okay? Anyway, this guy, Haggai, would know what the king liked, and he was actually helping Esther win the king's favor. Why? Because Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. This guy, Haggai, he wanted her to win. So he's like, hey, here's some inside information. Take this with you. The king will love it. So she does. Again, really weird. People were liking Esther. Now why? Why were they liking her? Because she was pretty? They were all pretty. There are times when God gives favor to His people in the sight of other people. You see it all through the Scripture. It's what we talked about last week. It's providence. God is working things out in the midst of all this filth and sin to accomplish His purposes. Esther had her time with the king, and sure enough, he loved her more than any of the other virgins. She pleased him more than the others. And it's said that she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. And I don't think it was her prowess that did this. She was a virgin. I mean, again, let's just be kind of plain spoken here. It was the help that she had received from Haggai, the eunuch, And I believe it was God's providence that the king said, I like this one a lot. And voila, Esther is the new king, queen, sorry, Esther is the new queen of Persia. And then what? Verse 18. Then the king gave a feast, a great feast, for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So what happens when somebody wins the queen pageant? You have a feast, right? That's what these folks do. They like to feast. They're like us. Okay. The king was celebrating his new queen and showing her off to all his palace staff. Come look at the new queen. She's hot, y'all. Come look at her. And just because he was in a good mood, he also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Old Xerxes was really filling the spirit to the point of sharing the joy with the commoners via gifts and tax breaks. What a great guy, huh? Yeah. So that's the end of our passage today. I didn't, I hadn't pulled that up, sorry. So we ask the question again, what about application? What do we see from today's section of Holy Scripture that applies to us here in the 21st century? Now, as with last week... 
it's kind of tough to look and see holy things in this. And that's part of the application. First, I've got three S's and a bonus application point this morning, by the way. Three S's, and the first is sinners. The second is shine. And the third is separate or separate. You could say it either way you want to. Sinners, shine, separate. Let's say separate. I want to say it's separate. So first is sinners. Listen to me, church. In way of application, you need to know something. I need to know something. Sinners, sin. Evil people do evil things. When I look at what's going on in this section of Esther, I see pagans being pagans. And what do pagans do? Pagans do what pleases them. Pagans do what they like. Pagans do what they want. And it's things like drinking and drunkenness, sex, self-indulgence, showing off and the like. It's what pagans do. They really ultimately worship themselves. Now, 1 Peter 4.3 says this, For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles or the pagans want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. That's what the Gentiles do. That's what the non-believers do. In Peter's terminology, the Gentiles are unsaved people. They're lost people. And what do they do? They do sensuality. They do passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Does that sound familiar? Does it not sound exactly what the Persians were doing? Sin hasn't changed much in all these years. It's still the same. And lost people are still doing what lost people do. They sin. They do evil things. Now let me ask you the question, does that make them evil people? And the answer is no with a caveat. No, the fact that they are evil people makes them do these things. Lost people... Now listen, be careful with me. Lost people are evil. And such were all of you. I'm not calling them evil to exalt us over them. And we're not evil. Don asked this morning, how many are sinners? Raise your hand. Sinners sin. And the reason they sin is because they're sinners. That's their pre-bent disposition. That's why we talk about depravity. Total depravity. Complete inability to do anything but sin. It is Romans 7. So don't expect anything else from the world and don't be shocked when lost people act like lost people. Well, why do I say this? Because we spend so much time pointing out the sins of the world and its inhabitants as if pointing to them makes us better than them or absolves us of our sin since it's not as bad as theirs. Amen. Now here's the application point in all this. Don't be shocked as the world devolves into sinful chaos. Sinners have always and will always sin. If that shocks you, you aren't reading your Bible. Because it's happened since Genesis. I started over in the Bible again. And how long does it take before God's sorry that He made man? Because the thoughts of men's hearts were evil continually. Sinners sin. And I think we sit and we watch the news and we go, Oh, can you believe that? Can you believe they did that? The people are doing Yeah, yeah, I can believe it. Because that's what sinners do. And that leads us to our next point. Sinners sin. And we live as saved people in the midst of unsaved people. So, shine, right? Sinners shine. Separate? Listen to me. As believers, like Jews in Persia, we live among non-believers whose belief system, whose worldview is completely different than ours. And if your worldview isn't completely different than an unbeliever, something's wrong with your worldview. 
That's the world that we live in. The previous application point was not to be shocked when sinners sin. This application point is to understand that we are called to live in the midst of this sin. Back before World War I, the world was caught up in the philosophy of modernity, modern thought. And what they thought was that the world was increasingly getting better and better and that we would finally reach moral perfection and reach utopia because deep down we're basically good. And then World War I happened. And then World War II happened. And people are going, hmm, maybe we're not very good. Maybe the world is an ugly place at times. And maybe we're not getting better. Maybe we're just able to destroy each other better than we were before. And it crushed the modern mindset. And then when we moved into postmodernism, where nobody cares about anything. Don't matter. Nothing matters anymore. We're just a bunch of chance cells put together and whatever happens, happens. And then you sleep with the worms and it's all over. But how are we supposed to live in the midst of this world? Because we are called to live in the midst of this sin. Listen to this. I'm going to change the application point. It's not shine anymore. It's sent. I've never done that in a message before. You've seen it for the first time. So we saw sinners. Now we see sent. Get rid of shine. Sent is better. S-E-N-T. Not. We've talked about myrrh and stuff. We're not talking about that anymore. Okay? The previous application point was not to be shocked when sinners sin. This application point is to understand that we are called to live in the midst of this sin. Actually, we are sent, and there you go, into the midst of all this sin and all these sinners. Jesus prayed this in His high priestly prayer. I have given them your word, talking about His disciples, and the world has hated them because they're not of this world, of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. We could also... Sanctified could be the application point. I won't change it again. We'll keep it as sent, okay? So what do you see Jesus saying here? They, His followers, are not of the world. But He does not ask that they be taken out of the world. Quite conversely, He sends them into the world that hates them. So as a Christian, as a believer, you're not to sit in judgment presiding over the gross sins of the world. Instead, you are sent into that world. Not to be taken out of it. And please, there's a word here for the church. We don't just get in here and get in our holy huddle and insulate ourselves from the dirtiness of the world. That was part of what the problem was before the Reformation. All the quote-unquote holy people were withdrawing from the world and going into cloisters and being monks and nuns and trying not to even talk so that they might not sin. And that's not the Christian life. It's not insulation from the world. Oh, we got to stay away from the dirty world. We are sent into that world. We are sent into the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We'll get to that in a minute. You were saved to be sent into the world. At your job, in your family, in the marketplace, at Walmart. You are sent into a world that hates you. Jesus said that clearly here. The world hated me. The world hates them because they are not of the world. So Father, send them into the world. This is not self-preservation. This is not safety. This is lambs among wolves. Lambs among lions sent that way by their master. Go into all of the world and preach the gospel is what Jesus said. So you are sent. Sinners, sent. You, Christian, are sent into a sinful world full of sinful sinners. Now why? Next point. 
separate. We are to be separate and distinct from the evil around us. You are not sent into the world to stand, mouth agape, finger pointed, in shock and awe at the badness of the sin around you. Did you see that? You are called to stand out, to be different, to be separate, and to draw people out of the darkness. I see Mordecai and Esther in this chapter, and I wonder if they were any different than those around them at all. They seem to have fit in pretty well. Now, I don't want to openly accuse them of blending in for convenience sake, but there sure seems to be at least some self-preservation in play here. They had pagan names. They didn't disclose Esther's Jewishness on purpose. Esther was not protesting the thought of being married to a non-believing, non-Jew pagan, which was against their law. But rather, she did her duty and won his heart. She, she sinned. Were she and Mordecai devout to the one true God of the Jewish people? If they were, I don't see it to this point. And I'm, I'm not saying they're bad people. I'm just saying they fit in awful well. Mordecai did take Esther in to raise her, and that's about all I see to this point in way of showing some kind of benevolent service. And that was family. It just seems that they had adapted to their culture in ways that made it easy for them to fit in. This beer is good. Mm-hmm. Now for us, we've spent a piece of time here in the application point showing that we live in the midst of what Paul calls a crooked and perverse generation. And Paul says in Philippians in that passage, Philippians 2, 14-16, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. We are to be blameless, innocent, without blemish, and shine as lights as we hold fast to the word of life. That's what Paul just said. Jesus said that we're the salt of the earth, the light of the world, and that we're a city set on a hill. Read these words with me, Matthew 5, 13-16. Jesus talking to His disciples, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, if you just fit in, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet or taken to the king to have a tryst with him to see if maybe you can win his heart. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, is that fitting in? Salt stings when it goes into a wound. It also preserves when it goes into meat. Light dispels darkness. John told us that the light has come into the world and the darkness has not overcome it. Light dispels darkness. Darkness is the absence of light. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So you can't fit in. You can't blend in and just go along to get along. You can't be like you used to be. You can't do what you used to do. And you can't just fit in with all these sinners around you. If you are fitting in, you are not saved. You say, well, don't judge me. I will judge you. And ultimately, Christ will judge you. I will look at your fruit and I will say, you are not bearing the fruit of repentance. Not to judge you harshly and say, I'm better than you, but to say, repent as the salt of the earth. I will put that salt in your wound and hope to heal it by the word of life. If we're not standing up against sin, if we're not separate from it and Exposing it is what Paul would say in Ephesians. Actually exposing deeds of the darkness. You're not light. And you don't take your light and put it under a bushel. It actually goes out because it dies from lack of oxygen, right? Go back to 1 Peter. We looked at this earlier, but I want to read verses 1 through 5. Listen to this. 
Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Here's the verse we looked at before. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So you stand out and you don't do what they do. You don't condone what they do. You actually condemn what they do. And they malign you. And you hold fast to the word of truth and they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That's how this thing called the Christian life works. You cannot blend in to this pagan culture around you. You can't do it. Don't live like sinners. The time past was more than enough to do these types of things whether you're five or 105. Now, live not for fleshly passions, but live for the will of God. And do that so that those who would malign you for not running with them will see your godly behavior and recognize that judgment is coming and turn to the judge, capital J, now to receive forgiveness of their sins so that they don't have to spend eternity in hell as punishment for those sins. If you don't point out people's sins, you don't love them. Sinners' sins. Brother, that's sin and and the king is coming and he's going to judge this sin and the judgment for it is eternity in hell. And if you don't hide behind the cross, hide yourself in Jesus, you are going to spend eternity in hell for rebellion against the king of kings. When's the last time you heard anybody say anything like that out in the culture? Well, you're going to sound hateful. There's nothing hateful about warning people about the wrath to come. How many times have I walked into a room and heard one of my kids say, Oh, Dad's dead. There's Dad. (laughs) Stop. Quit. He's going to catch you. (laughs) Warning people about coming judgment is pure love. Preach and live the gospel in the midst of the sinners around you. Don't go along to get along. Don't live in a self-preserving, I'll just fit in kind of way. Live godly for God's glory and in the hope of God using your life to draw others to Him. Sinners sent and separate. And I do have a bonus application point which is not an S. And my application point, the bonus application point, kind of springs out of the time we spent yesterday at Tamarack. And my question in this application point is where are the men. As I read the second chapter of Esther, I see Mordecai taking Esther in after her parents died, and I see him checking on her daily in the harem. And besides that, I don't see any male doing anything remotely resembling anything noble. Instead, I see young men advising a sick, perverted man to round up pretty virgins and pick his favorite. I see an adoptive cousin putting up no resistance to his adopted cousin slash daughter being taken for a one-night audition to possibly be that sick, perverted man's wife. I see an entire kingdom built on the whims and fancies of one man and people reacting to him, buying their affections through tax cuts and royal gifts. And my question is, where are the godly men in Esther? And more pointedly, where are the godly men in our day, in our time, and in our presence? Where are the men who will stand up for what is biblical and lay down their lives for the women and children in their lives and the lives of the women and children of the world? Passivity has been a plague to men and manhood since Adam stood actionless in the Garden of Eden while his wife, who was there with him, was led astray by the serpent. Genesis 3.6 So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Here stands Adam 
in that phrase, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Here stands Adam doing nothing! And then doing the one thing he was told not to do by God himself. Genesis 3, that's the beginning of the book. And men have suffered the plague of passivity since then. And I'm going to ask you, and I'm going to encourage you, and I'm going to poke and prod and scream at you, men, wake up! Men! Yes, you live in a sin-saturated world where you can have a virtual harem and pick the picture that gives you the most pleasure anytime you want to. But stand up, be holy, be a man, and serve those around you. Lay down your life for the people around you. Lay down your life for your wife. Lay down your life for your children. Lay down your wife for your future family, young men, if you aren't married, and for the ladies that are in your life now. I want to look at one of Paul's closing commands in 1 Corinthians 16 as we finish. Paul says this to the Corinthians as he's wrapping things up with them. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. To which I say, yes. Men, be watchful men. Men, stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Men, be strong. Men, and above all, men, let all that you do be done in love. It's not love to have a procession of women seek to please you and earn your lustful glances. It's not love to live like a spoiled brat and expect people around you to coddle you and tell you that you deserve to be happy. It's not love to live for yourself. And listen, the world is dying literally for men to be men. The National Center for Fathering reports that of students in grades 1 to 12, 39% of them, or 17.7 million students in America, live in homes absent their biological fathers. Four in ten. 17.7 million students don't have their biological father in the home. And it's not just about being a father, men. It's about living in a sexualized culture that tells men to indulge with no fear of consequences. Hugh Hefner died last year. And he was lauded, applauded, praised by the media as an entertainment giant. This man had spent decades objectifying and taking advantage of women for his own personal wealth and pleasure. That's the kind of world that you live in, men. Don't be that kind of man because that's not a man. Matt Chandler says that's a boy who shaves. That's not a man. That's just a boy who wants his favorite toy for his own personal pleasure. And that's what Xerxes was like. Christian men, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Let's pray. God, it has pleased you to create man in your image. Male and female, you created them. And while we all have a call to emulate Christ, while we all have a call, God, to live in the midst of sinners sent into the world and to be separate from them, God, I would ask that you would light a fire in the men of this church and that we would be leaders, that we would be lovers, letting all that we do being done in love, that we would adopt the culture around us. In that, we go out and take it captive to the obedience of Christ. May we live in such a way that the world looks and says, that's a man. May we protect those around us who need protecting. May we preach the gospel to every creature that we come into contact with. 
And may we be husbands and fathers and brothers and sons that glorify you. May we not be spoiled brats who just want our kinky way for our selfish desires. May we not be those who waste our lives, but may we be those who glorify you with what we say and do. And for the ladies, God, I pray that you would help them to see our example and follow Jesus as they see His life lived out through us. God, make us different than the culture around us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Soup and sandwiches today, if you can stay with us. If you can't stay with us, it's still soup and sandwiches. But Now to Him, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed.